Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, Episode 68, Scorched Earth. First, as always, big thanks to all of our generous supporters, new ones, for this month, uh, or the last couple weeks, really. We've got Alexander Panov, David Hendrickson, Susan Deasy, and a huge thanks to the extreme generosity of Jan Heinrichs, who single-handedly covered maybe a year of the cost of the new website that is up and running, and you should all go check it out. There's uh, a lot more information, there's a lot better, uh, kind of better design and things, and starting with this episode, every single episode is now going to have uh, a timeline, kind of a rough timeline, which I was creating anyways. That's the that's when I'm starting to create a, a new episode. It starts with me making a kind of rough timeline of all the things that happen and some descriptions of the major characters and things like that. So go check it out. It's uh, there's a lot of good stuff. BGHistoryPodcast.com. Last time, we saw the Ottoman-Venetian War devolve into essentially an Ottoman-Albanian war. Besides some conflict in the Aegean Sea and a bit in Morea in southern Greece, most of the fighting was between Skanderbeg and the numerous Ottoman armies sent against him. Once again, he beat all of them, but died of malaria in 1468 nonetheless. We also saw a brief war between Hungary and Moldavia, which led to a Hungarian defeat and now an anti-Ottoman alliance between the two. So now it's time to see what happens in this ongoing Ottoman-Venetian war now that Skanderbeg is no more. To begin, we're looking at some of the events going on in Hungary, namely the beginning of an invasion of Austria in early 1468 by King Matthias's former brother-in-law, the son of the King of Bohemia. So to gain his support, the Austrian emperor implied that Matthias may be elected King of the Romans, a title which would function as a kind of precursor to possibly becoming Holy Roman Emperor, if the Pope agreed. So again, essentially, the, the son of the King of Bohemia is invading Austria. The Austrian emperor is trying to get Hungarian help to fend off this invasion. And, well, it was far too good of an opportunity to miss, and so Matthias agreed. And over the next two years, he successfully pushed the Bohemian troops out of Austria and then invaded their own lands. He ultimately annexed some of these lands, but Bohemia itself, their kind of core territory, never accepted his rule. Still, while Matthias had successfully saved Emperor Frederick of Austria from the Bohemians, relations between them soured when the Ottomans were able to march straight through Hungarian territory, unimpeded, to raid Austrian lands causing no damage to the Hungarian territories that they passed through. So you can see that the Austrian emperor's suspicions weren't entirely unreasonable, as it seemed like Matthias was taking advantage of the Ottoman-Venetian War to establish good relations with the Ottomans to avoid conflict, and that he was thereby kind of just allowing the Ottomans to march through and uh, get straight to the Austrians, and the Austrians felt that Matthias should be doing a little more to stop these raids. Still, 
This policy created problems for Matthias following uh, 1670 when he faced some setbacks in the ongoing fight in Bohemia and needed Austrian support. But Frederick was no longer inclined to either help the Hungarian king in his war or, let alone, support him to become king of the Romans. In the meantime, Moldavia was facing its own outside pressures. In 1470, it was invaded by the Tatars, but successfully managed to repel them, while around the same time, a Wallachian army unsuccessfully attempted to retake the Moldavian fortress at Chilea. In response to these attacks, Stephen the Great built a new border fortress, actually several of them. Um, But he wasn't done because he then invaded Wallachia in retaliation and sacked several of their most important Danubian trading centers. And going back a little for this context, remember Chilea is this very important trading kind of post and fortress right at the kind of Black Sea at the bottom of Moldavian territory. And really everybody wants it. For Wallachia, it means access to the Black Sea, uh, better access to markets and trade, as well as a powerful fortress. The Ottomans would rather like to have it because it could function as a sort of jumping off point for invasions of, you know, what's now kind of Tatar territory, what is currently Ukraine, uh, as well as, of course, Moldavia, Wallachia. It could lead to a lot of things. So this is a very, very valuable piece of real estate. So everyone's fighting over it, of course. So then towards the end of that year, 1470, the deposed former voivoda of Moldavia, Peter Aaron, you remember this guy, uh, well, he invaded Moldavia, most likely with Hungarian backing. But he was quickly defeated and captured by Stephen the Great. Unsurprisingly, he was executed. You, know, you don't imagine that uh, a king is going to just allow a former king, or Voivoda in this case, uh, to kind of act as a potential usurper. And so that put an end to that particular threat to Stephen's throne. But the enemies of Moldavia were far from done because the very next year, 1471, Wallachia invaded yet again to again try to take Chilea. But again, the Wallachians were defeated badly, and many of their nobles were killed in the process. And so here we're getting our best glimpse yet into why Stephen III of Moldavia is now known as Stephen the Great or Stefan Celmare in the local language. Now, he's going to still face greater challenges in the future, but in the meantime, remember the Ottoman-Venetian War is still going on. In 1470, Mehmet personally led his army to besiege the important Venetian colony of Negroponte in central Greece. Venice sent a small naval relief force in an attempt to break the siege, but its commander lost his nerve and refused to even engage the enemy. As a result, Negroponte fell, further weakening the Venetian position in Greece, just as their possessions along the Adriatic were looking increasingly vulnerable to Ottoman raids there. So, Again, we see that, uh, you know, Moldavia is fighting off enemies on all sides and things. But in the meantime, the Ottoman-Venetian War is still going on almost like a cold war. Like there's occasional fights and skirmishes and battles, but it's pretty low key. Not a lot going on. But this was a pretty substantial loss for the Venetians. It's not looking good for them. Still from here, the Ottoman-Venetian War goes quiet for a while, possibly because The Ottoman forces are at this point busy conquering Karamanid territories along the Mediterranean coast in Anatolia, and they're doing this throughout 1471. Now, 
These conquests were vital to prevent the Ottoman Empire's rival Turkic federation of Akkoyunlu, based in kind of Mesopotamia, from obtaining a port on the Mediterranean which they could use to trade with Europe and establish themselves as a far greater power. So this is, you can see the kind of great power politics uh, at foot here, right? Uh, if anyone studied the great game, the 19th century battles for Central Asia between Great Britain and Russia, it's a bit similar, right? Russia's trying to get down through Afghanistan to Iran to a nice warm port so they can have much better access to the sea to trade and things, and the existing powers trying to stop them. So the Ottomans, you know, they're well established, as we know. Uh, there's no one challenging them very much in the Balkans, but they are always concerned, just like we saw with uh, with Tamerlane, right? There, there are these huge empires that seem to kind of rise up in Central Asia and the Middle East, which can really threaten the Ottoman Empire because those empires, uh, they're steppe empires, just like the Ottomans. They know how to fight like the Ottomans. And unlike the Europeans, they can pretty quickly muster 100,000 soldiers. Uh, and so preventing one of these steppe empires, not really steppe anymore, but uh, this Turkic federation from becoming an established kind of Middle Eastern powerhouse is extremely important for Mehmet. Still, the big difference here is that the Ottomans, remember, have gunpowder weapons. That's the real advantage for the Ottomans, right? They've got a lot of the advantages of these big, powerful Central Asian or Middle Eastern states, but they also have kind of state-of-the-art European technology at the same time. And so by straddling those two worlds, they're really getting the best of both of them. And so while this Akkoyunlu uh, Turkic Federation is a very powerful state, they do not have those gunpowder weapons for now. Because right at this time, you know, th this Turkic Federation is very aware of its own limitations, and so they ally themselves with the Venetians. Makes sense, right? The Venetians are still at war with the Ottomans. This uh, Akkoyunlu, they're worried about going to war with the Ottomans, so why not work together? And so the Venetians agreed to give them more advanced gunpowder weapons so they can truly challenge the Ottomans in Anatolia. So together, Venice and Akkoyunlu attack these Karamanid territories uh, together in 1472. And again, if you're trying to imagine where these territories are, think about Anatolia and how uh, you know the land kind of suddenly turns south where you get to Syria, right? That the top part of that corner of the Mediterranean, that corner where Cyprus is and everything, that's the Karamanid territories just up there. So there's a joint attack by land. Turkic forces and by sea from Venice uh, with attacks on places like Antalya and Izmir. So even kind of Ottoman cities that aren't in this territory are going to get some attacks to basically put on the pressure. The leader of the Turkic Federation is a man named Uzun Hasan, and he sends a letter to Mehmed demanding Trebizond, which you'll remember the Ottomans conquered from the kind of last remnants of Byzantium some decades earlier, as well as the Karamanid lands. But, well, unsurprisingly, uh, the offer was turned down. Mehmed had no interest in relinquishing power in Anatolia to a rival like this. Uh, and clearly, the Ottomans are not worried about handling a two-front war with Venice and Akkoyunlu. Uh, you know, they, they've received so little kind of real pressure in Europe at this point. So even if they kind of step back, 
they're not worried that like Moldavia or Albania or Venice or Hungary are going to mount like a significant invasion or something in the Balkans and challenge them there. So they're completely comfortable with a two-front war, which is, you know, pretty new for them. Uh, mostly, yeah, because as I said, Venice has next to nothing in terms of offensive capabilities. And remember, the Ottomans are on good terms with Hungary at this time, so they're not particularly worried about a Hungarian invasion. But still, the Ottomans had to send a very significant army to face uh, Akkuyunlu in Anatolia because, remember, they're a very large state. Uh, They have huge manpower resources. And so they do that. The two forces send send their armies to meet each other. And by the time they meet in eastern Anatolia in 1473, each army numbers perhaps 100,000 soldiers. But, again, as we've kind of alluded to, the most important difference is in their armaments. Because the Venetian supply of gunpowder weapons never reached them. It was captured by the Ottoman navy en route. And so the Ottomans were equipped with the latest cannons and guns. The Turkmen Akkoyunlu forces. They were an army that could have easily existed in their kind of current form two centuries before. I mean, they were at this point a powerful but still hopelessly outdated force. The two armies met each other on either side of the Euphrates River. The Turkmen, the Akkoyunlus, uh, they initially sent a cavalry force over to engage the Ottomans, but then retreated and were followed by Ottoman cavalry onto their side of the river. Once the Ottoman contingent of cavalry was completely over the river, a Turkmen force got in and destroyed the bridge and then swung around to surround them. The result was a total victory over these 5,000 or so Ottoman cavalry. They were isolated from the rest of their force, cut off from the river, uh, cut off by this bridge, and surrounded. And so they were utterly wiped out. The Turkmen army then crossed a different bridge and managed to chase away the remaining Ottoman forces. So the first day of battle saw... A pretty, a pretty decent victory by the, the Turkmen, but still, you know, 5,000 out of uh, 100,000. It's not a, a loss that the Ottomans can't come back from. Still, it's looking good for them. Their tactics are winning. But the Ottomans weren't done. They regrouped and met the army of Uzun Hasan once again 10 days later, this time with their full force altogether. Remember, that cavalry detachment was kind of a forward operating unit. When the two forces met, The Ottomans put their Janissaries in the front, cavalry on the flanks, while the Turkmen divided their forces into four groups of light cavalry because their army was a classic Central Asian force, nearly entirely light cavalry. So the battle began with cavalry engagements on both flanks. And after some time, the Ottoman left was pushed back, and so the Janissaries in the center had to rush over to reinforce the Ottoman left and prevent it from breaking. Now, with a weakened Ottoman center directly in front of him, Uzun Hasan sent his center forward for a full attack. He saw those Janissaries were weak and went for the kill. However, along the way, his light cavalry were absolutely devastated by Ottoman artillery and gunpowder units. They had a big open plain between them, and so there was a lot of space where they were completely wide open to these kinds of distance attacks. Now, in another era, sure, you'd have some uh, some arrows or something, but 
it wasn't quite the same. You know, nowadays we think about militaries in a big open field running across it to attack is extremely dangerous. And so here we really see that kind of clash of a new era of warfare with an old era of warfare where Uzun Hassan is acting like, yeah, who cares about this big wide open plane? Just uh, it's uh, enough space for our cavalry to really build up some momentum and then smash into the enemy. But their momentum is going to be gone if all the way they're being just smashed to bits by this artillery and these guns. And so that's what happened. You know, the, the enemy center was basically annihilated almost before it even got across the field to the Janissaries. Uh, the Janissaries basically took care of anyone that was left. And what this meant now was that instead of the Ottomans having this weak center that had to defend itself, the Ottoman center, these powerful Janissaries, were now free to move to the flanks and assist their cavalry there and help destroy what remained of the Turkoman flanks. So that's exactly what they did. And Uzun Hasan and his Akkoyunlu army suffered a massive, devastating loss. And so, again, we can see, you know, gunpowder really made the difference. I mean, if it were not for gunpowder, this battle could have very easily gone another way. That, that kind of central cavalry charge could have just devastated the Janissary infantries. And uh, Uzun Hasan could have just swept up after that. And so technology is coming in. Technology is starting to change the world, as it always is. But you know what I mean. And so the result of this battle is Ottoman dominance in Anatolia, allowing the empire to now refocus entirely on Europe. They have no more... Uh, challengers in Anatolia. And so, whereas before, okay, they're not super afraid at any given time of a two-front war, but it's in their minds, right? They need to be prepared for it. It's always a possibility. But now, no fear. They can focus entirely on Europe. And this is very dangerous for Moldavia, for Hungary, for Venice, for the Austrians, for everyone in that region. Now, quick note, for a fantastic video on the battle that I just discussed in the decades preceding it, you should check out the Kings and Generals YouTube channel. Uh, I'm going to link it in the description uh, for this podcast episode and on the website. But a quick note, uh, my friend Georgi, a cool guy who lives here in Sofia, he does some of their research. He's working on a uh, video centered around Khan Krum right now. So I don't know when that's coming out. Uh, Georgi can let me know. But it's a really, really good YouTube channel, excellent quality content, and it's got at least one Bulgarian working on it, and they cover some of the things that we cover here. And so uh, check that video out to get like a nice map view of the battle I just described. So while the war in Anatolia was ongoing, things were pretty quiet in Europe. Not surprising again, the, you know, the, the Venetians weren't so ready for an offensive war while the Ottomans were distracted, so not much happened. The only event kind of worth knowing was that Matthias of Hungary attempted to support a rebellion against the Austrian emperor, but it didn't really work out. Now, in 1473, again, the same uh, year as that battle, Stephen of Moldavia, well, he gets more involved in Wallachian politics um, because, well, he has to, right? Wallachia's invaded him twice in the last few years. And so he gets in there and he manages to broker an agreement whereby Radu of Wallachia is going to be replaced by Besarab Laosha the Old uh, as Voivodan. So basically, Molde you know, Stephen of Moldavia supports a pretender to the throne and manages to overthrow the Voivoda of Wallachia. And now the exact reasons for this are unclear. I mean, obviously, I guess he wanted more of an ally to be ruling Wallachia, but well, 
we know that at this moment, Wallachia was a real center of a power struggle between Hungary, Moldavia, and the Ottomans. Now, remember the Ottomans, the, the Wallachians were Ottoman, yeah. The Wallachians were all uh, Ottoman uh, uh, vassals at this point. So all three of these powers had a real stake in what happened there. And Laosha, the, the person who replaced Radu, who was a friend and possibly lover of Mehmet, um, appears to have gotten into power successfully. And so he decides at this point that it actually makes more sense to work with the Ottomans than the Moldavians. So he switches sides. So that sucks. You know, poor Stephen in Moldavia, he's... I'm sure spends a lot of effort to get this guy to to rule his neighboring state. And then he just, you know, looks at the board and realizes, oh, oh, it really doesn't make sense for me to ally with Moldavia. Forget that. We're going back with the Ottomans. Still, in spite of this, I don't have a lot of details, but Radu and Laosha, these two leaders, they kind of trade places as who's ruling Wallachia several times over the next two years as each of them kind of jockey for power. Now, Going forward, in the spring of 1474, Mehmet, well, he's back. He's ready to turn his full attention to Europe, focusing on the Venetian territories in Albania, kind of north of central Albania, and Shkodra, and further north. And so the Ottomans send a lot of forces, and they settle down to a siege of Shkodra, this uh, very important Venetian settlement there, with somewhere between twenty and 50,000 soldiers and artillery, a fairly substantial force. For that area. They take control of the surrounding region, and Venetians, they desperately send galleys with reinforcements via a river which can lead to Shkodra, but the Ottomans manage to block the river with tree trunks. Still, the Venetians do get a f- most of their ships through, ultimately, and help kind of relieve the siege, but it's still a very dire situation for them. Because, well, those reinforcements are still mostly blocked by those trees and things, and so Wood is transported over the mountains from Kotor, which is now in Montenegro, uh, to build ships on Skadar Lake. So Shkodra has this river, but it's also got a lake next to it. And so the Venetians build some ships on the lake so they can dominate that water. And this allows them to then use those ships to get reinforcements and food and everything, supplies to the city. And this results in a Venetian victory. So the Ottomans, they do significant damage to the city walls and they have to be repaired afterwards. But the Ottomans realize that, you know, they can't outlast the Venetians now that the Venetians have a way to get supplies in. And so, well, they give up. And with this failure, Mehmet orders his army to leave Shkodra and head for Sofia in Bulgaria, where I am now, to regroup and then progress to Wallachia to link up with their vassal army and finally to progress to Moldavia. Yes, seeing his failure in Albania, Mehmed isn't interested in still fighting around uh, Albania, trying to, to kind of defeat what, what remaining forces left over after Skanderbeg's death is there. No, no, no. He has seen that Moldavia, as we know, for the last two years has been kind of meddling in Wallachian politics, and he is not okay with it. And so Mehmet wants to turn everyone around and send them all the way across the entire Balkan Peninsula to show Stephen who's boss. Also, to make this you know more likely, Stephen had stopped paying tribute to the Ottomans in 1470. Uh, and so, yeah, he, he had broken a lot of rules, and Mehmet decided he needed to be shown a lesson. This choice was also prompted by Stephen's refusal to agree to terms offered by Mehmet. So 
before Mehmed sent the army, he said, okay, how about this? Moldavia, you agree not to attack Wallachia, and you personally come to Constantinople and pay me the back tribute that you owe me. And also give the Ottomans that fortress of Chilia, which I said everyone wants so badly. But Stephen refused, and so we have a casus belli. We have a reason to go to war. The problem for the Ottomans was, of course, that, you know, if you just look at a map, even today, I mean, if you ask me to travel from Škodra up to, like, Chisinau, somewhere in Moldova, I I think you were a crazy person. Like, that would be an outrageously long trip, even with today's means of transportation. And so it took many, many, many months to travel all the way from Škodra to Moldavia. And it was getting late in the season, right? They'd already used the spring and early summer to try to uh, besiege Škodra. And so it's not like they're starting fresh. Uh, they, they still got months behind them. The result is that the Ottoman army doesn't reach Sofia until late September. And by the time they cross the Danube at Vidin, well, it's already getting cold. And the Ottomans know they're in for a brutal winter campaign. So first, they rest for about two weeks in uh, Wallachia. And interesting to note here, just a quick side note, the Ottoman army was actually supported by Bulgarian engineers, uh, several thousand it seems, who were doing things like clearing roads and building bridges. So, you know, it's a reminder of what I've said, that uh, it's important to cover Ottoman history as Bulgarian history because, you know, the Ottomans are ruling Bulgarian lands. Bulgarians are fighting in the Ottoman armies. Bulgarians are serving in Ottoman administration. They're often silent, right? We don't see them so much, but they're there. They're a part of all of this history. So anyways, back to the story. Now, while the army advanced after this two-week break, Stephen is desperately seeking aid from other European states to help him face this Ottoman invasion. Now, Ultimately, he receives a few soldiers from Hungary, Poland, Transylvania, um, but not as much as he would like. And meanwhile, in Wallachia, Laotia's Wallachian vassal army joins the Ottomans as they continue their march, adding maybe 10 or 15,000 additional soldiers. So it's now early December. Winter is properly settling in, and the Ottomans with their Wallachian vassal allies are entering Moldavian territory. And what they find there is nothing. Absolutely nothing. No people, no crops, no animals. The the land is empty. The entire population has been moved north. Everything an army could eat or use has been stripped from the land. Even the wells have been poisoned. But the Ottoman army can't endure the shame of turning back without a fight. And so they progress into the desolate Moldavian winter, having to try desperately to rely on their own supply lines. Uh, Fortunately, Wallachia is not far away, and so they can help somewhat. But, you know, Wallachia as a state is not equipped to supply, you know, let's say 65,000 soldiers. So they just have to make do. But of course, the Ottoman misfortune doesn't end with the lack of food or water or the freezing temperatures, because as they head into Moldavian territory, small groups of enemy soldiers constantly harass their army with hit-and-run attacks and ambushes. Now, this continues for a month, 
And you can only imagine how the Ottomans must have felt 30 days of wandering in this desolate land, constantly wondering whether those snowy woods or that dark little corner might be hiding Moldavian soldiers ready to slit their throats and take what little food they have. And all this after spending months traveling across the entire Balkan Peninsula, having just lost and wasted their time at this siege in Skodra. They can't be in good spirits. And then, finally, a break. Ottoman scouts report that there are normal villages with food, water, and people near the Moldavian town of Vesui. The Ottomans begin heading there, hoping, hoping to find Stephen and his army, or at least just, you know, a place to rest. They reach the banks of a river and stop to determine whether the Moldavian army is nearby. Again, even if they can't uh, meet them, they're, they're just desperate to rest and resupply. So as the Ottomans cross the river, it's foggy, it's rainy, it's a, well, it's an Eastern European winter. And all this fog, all this rain makes it nearly impossible to see. And so the Ottomans are very cautious. They're thinking the enemy could be close, they could be anywhere. And just at this moment, the Moldavians announce their presence with war drums. Eager for the battle they've waited months and traveled across the entire Balkans for, the Ottomans proceed up the valley to meet the main Moldavian army. Except it's not the main Moldavian army which met them. Instead, it's a professional corps of the army, a small professional corps, waiting to engage them. As the Ottomans advance through deep, marshy mud, Moldavian light cavalry comes towards them out of the fog and attacks them before rushing back into the mist. The Moldavian cavalry repeat this over and over as the Janissary units rush to get out of this mud so they can fight the enemy on equal footing. Finally, they're free of the marshes and they rush forward and find Moldavian soldiers there to meet them. Now, as the heavy Sabahi cavalry behind them makes its way through the mud, Moldavian archers and gunners hidden on the high ground around the battlefield begin a devastating barrage of missiles as the Moldavian artillery begins to bombard the bridge, threaten threatening to destroy it and cut off the Ottoman army from its other half, still waiting to catch up with its forward units. Then, the weight of Ottoman cavalry crossing the bridge causes it to collapse on its own, plunging men and horses into the icy river to their deaths, and preventing further reinforcements of Ottoman troops, as well as preventing communications from the Ottoman commander towards these frontline units. And there, at the front lines, the Moldavians are gradually retreating, just as their king had instructed them to do so, drawing the Ottomans into carefully prepared killing zones for their missile troops. But all is not going completely according to plan for the Moldavians, as that Ottoman Sapahi cavalry manages to rout their central line of infantry before turning to attack their flanks. The Moldavian army is now in danger of collapsing. Still, the Ottoman commander has lost communication with his army and doesn't really know what's going on. And then, just at this crucial moment, more loud war drums erupt to the left of the Ottoman lines. And so, fearing another attack, the Ottomans rush to reform and set up a line to meet whatever might come through that fog. Except, it was another trap. The main Moldavian army, along with heavy Polish cavalry and local cavalry and peasant infantry, 
there on the Ottoman right, the exact opposite of where all the war drums were coming from. And so just as the Ottomans regroup and face the enemy they think is coming, the Moldavians sweep down and slam into their rear, just where they're not prepared to face the army. And as a result, the Ottoman force breaks almost immediately as each man attempts to run back to their army, to the main force, to safety, through that icy, muddy marsh that they had just fought so hard to get through. And as they do, they're slaughtered. The remaining Ottoman force, along with those 15,000 Wallachian troops, have no way to engage or help their comrades as they're forcing to, being forced to retreat. And so the Ottoman force as a whole has to turn and run. And as they run back to Wallachian territory, back to safety, they are hunted down, harassed, and killed all the way. Back to the Danube, back through those same lifeless, empty, snowy lands. Remember, there's still no water, there's still no food as they're retreating day after day to get to safety. A Polish chronicler wrote, quote, All but the most eminent of the Turkish prisoners are impaled. End quote describing the scenes of horror which met the Ottomans who were captured. If there were indeed over 100,000 Ottoman soldiers and allies, conservatively even say 75,000, about half of them were lost. You know, 20, 30, 40, 50,000. A massive number. Remember, that, that's the size of a full army. Gone. The Battle of Vaslui was one of the worst defeats Mehmet the Conqueror had ever suffered only rivaled perhaps by his loss at the Siege of Belgrade. Moldavia and its King Stephen had secured itself against all rivals. The Tatars, the Poles, the Hungarians, the Wallachians, even the mighty Ottomans. Moldavia had shown all of them that it could stand on its own. That same Polish chronicler wrote of King Stephen, quote, Praiseworthy hero, in no respect inferior to other hero soldiers we admire. He was the first contemporary among the rulers of the world to score a decisive victory against the Turks. To my mind, he is the worthiest to lead a coalition of the Christian Europe against the Turks. End quote. Once again, if you'd like to see a great YouTube video covering that battle, check out the History Marsh channel. Uh, again, there will be a link in the description and on the website. Another great kind of map video showing you all the details. So, in the after aftermath of this victory, King Stephen sent prisoners and pleas for money and soldiers to help him fight the Ottomans to Poland, Hungary, and the Pope himself. The Pope sent a title, Champion of Christ, and nothing else. Matthias and the King of Poland sent even less. But... Other important events were also afoot in the region. King Matthias decided to release none other than Vlad the Impaler from prison and to recognize him as the legitimate ruler of Wallachia in response to the states working with the Ottomans. Obviously, Matthias, well, he had fought with Vlad in the past, but he thought now Vlad was his best chance to regain some influence and control over Wallachia against the Ottomans. God knows uh, there's few people in the world who have shown themselves a better kind of enemy for the Ottomans than Vlad, only perhaps Skanderbeg, and now joining them, Stephen. Still, releasing him didn't mean much because at this point, Vlad has no army with which to regain his throne. So he becomes a sort of private citizen living in Pest. Now, in response to his loss at Vesli, Mehmet is inconsolable. He refuses to speak to anyone for days. But when he regains his composure... 
he has one thing on his mind. Revenge. Revenge on the Moldavians. Revenge on King Stephen. And so he begins to compose a grand army. His greatest army. Now sure, he's still at war with Venice, but Venice can wait. Fortunately for Mehmed, around this time, the Tatars request Ottoman aid against Genoese settlements in Crimea. The Ottomans oblige, conquering these territories and basically conquering the Crimean coast for the Ottoman Empire. And in exchange for doing this, the Crimean Khaganate agrees to become an Ottoman protectorate. This meant that the Sultan had veto power over who could become Khan, and the relationship would eventually evolve into really an alliance, much more than a vassal relationship, but a true alliance. And the Crimean Tatars, well, they're not going to give tribute to the Ottomans, but they will help the Ottomans militarily. And so, with these new allies secured, once the next winter turned into spring in 1476, the Ottomans and their Tatar allies prepare to attack Moldavia, intent on not making the same mistakes. Next time, we'll see how well the Moldavians can hold their own against an even larger and more determined Ottoman force with revenge on its mind. This episode was written and produced by me, Eric Halsey. The theme music was written and performed by Teddy Raven. As always, Uspech.